Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Background YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my steadfast co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. And I say steadfast because we had a calendar mishap this morning, but here we are. We're chatting. Here we yes. are. Here no we are. Days off, baby. Diving back into the Stone Age and changing times and links and holy moly. All right, quick reveal. So I am wearing the uh, blood running in the streets, red pants today, not orange. And uh, a little bit of of uh, Bitcoin Lightning Network uh, sock game, uh, which we'll talk about why I did that today. But but man, the blood is running in the streets, particularly in the bond market. You got the Bank of Japan intervening overnight. It's it's bad out there. It's bad. It is bad. bad. Stuff Things are it breaking. Bad. You wouldn't know it in crypto, though. You wouldn't know it in crypto. You, not. you got prices holding up pretty nicely. Which is yeah. which is what they should do because two things. One, uh, it they are uncorrelated, right? Their their value is not determined by what goes on with interest rates and and economic growth, et cetera. But secondly, um, little bit of safe haven action, particularly for for the top end, you know, up at, at the Bitcoin level. But then finally, what all this means is we're closer, likely, to having to print their way out of it again. That's going to be a nice lead into the big stories that we're going to talk about today. So you and I are going to spend a bunch of times on bonds. Uh, so obviously, the long end of the curve especially has been, I, I think now that it was a little pre- preliminary to say that there's been a, a meltdown in the bond market, but I, we're getting close to that terminology. There's a been a bloodbath. It is a bloodbath, hence the Historic pants. route, mm-hmm. historic route. We've got some great yeah. charts to show you on that. Uh, you you said it, a potential an, an intervention from the BOJ. That's always a sign of stress. We got a ripping, uh, we've got uh, oil up, we've got dollar up, and we've got a cool setup. Uh, the setup today matched against a historical setup to walk you through. Uh, and we're gonna we're, we should talk as well about uh, the House removing Kevin McCarthy as speaker, um, and we've actually got a pro crypto, um, pro tempora speaker in there for the time. Good North being. Carolina man, we we like that. And we should talk a little bit about the Going Infinite book that just came out. We almost had Michael Lewis at permission listen. Man, now I'm glad we didn't do that because, geez, I don't know how that would have been a glad. I don't know how the audience would have reacted to some of these takes. Um, um about how we're gonna react in a minute. I agree. I agree. Now, before we get there, I do want to just give an update on the BlockWorks side of things. So all the stuff that you and I are talking about today, the mixing of macro and crypto, talking about overall bonds, commodities, all that stuff, how it interfaces with Bitcoin, that is the type of thing that we're going to be talking about at our next conference, DAS London. So that's coming up in March. Mark is 90 to 95% confirmed. We're working on getting him. I'm going to be there. The, the 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 only potential fly in the ointment is uh, we're trying to to schedule my my twelve year old's spring break trip, and, and I'm I'm ninety nine percent sure that's uh, actually ten days out, so it'll be no problem at all. And uh, you know, this will be right after the Ides of March, 
which is always a fun time to, to be in jolly old England and uh, channeling Shakespeare and, and all those good things. Exactly. Here's So the reason this is also going to be interesting is March is also the time frame where we're going to be within about a month of the halving in March. Yeah. We are supposed to get our Bitcoin ETF final words over here in the US in March. So March is going to be a hot time, but also London is just a great place to travel to. It is. And it's, I mean, whether you love history, whether you love uh, culture, um, you know, you just, you walk down the street and you hear 25 different languages. I'm not actually exaggerating. Um, it's just awesome, right? And and it's the, it has been the historical center of finance for a long time. And New York kind of wrested that away, kind of, but I don't know. London, I always said I wish I would have had the guts to, to move there when I was young. Plus, I wanted my kids to grow up with that accent because you you just sound so cool if you, you man. My, my best friend, he's a, he's a, he's an English guy. And I always tell him he's coming over. He's a six, six English guy. And I always tell him, buddy, you're, pl- you're playing tennis with the net down, my man. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> let's, let's just be honest about what the situation is here. You're yeah, playing yeah, tennis yeah, with yeah, the yeah. net down. That's, it's, it's just, so. yeah. But if you're, if you're a lover of on the margin content, uh, this, this conference is basically made for you because it's a nice blending of some of the macro folks that we know and love so much and have on the show with some of the more Bitcoin focused and crypto focused content that we talk yeah, about. You know, well. So if you were, if you were, no, disappointed, I shouldn't say disappointed because nothing the BlockWorks does could be disappointing. But if you were disappointed by the, you know, that other show's sponsorship of Permissionless, um, you know, you can, you can really come get your fill with, with the right show on the margin uh, in, in England. That's exactly right. And we've got early bird prices right I now. I love you, so Jason Santiago, by the way. I, I do as well. I do as well. So we've got early bird prices right now. Head over to, to the BlockWorks site. We'll link it in the show notes and, and click and go there. But now let's just dive right into the macro this week. So I'm going to pull up my, my charts here. Uh, Mark, it has been an absolutely brutal week for, for bonds. And I, I want to I set this with the context of you and I have been talking about, I think, this entire year or the, the last couple of months. I think the, the word we've used to describe this is limbo. Feels like we're sitting in limbo where markets could go one way or another. You know, start of this year, the stocks have been all the way up. Everything looked like it was recovered. We started talking from a hard landing to a soft landing to no landing. And we were just kind of floating there for a while, yeah. right? The economic data wasn't really telling us too much. Now it looks like uh, some of those signs of stress that we hypothesize are starting to materialize. So this is what we're looking at here. If you're following along via video, is um, the bonds at different terms. So the U.S. 30-year, uh, the 20-year, and the 10-year, and all of them have just been basically starting in September, just been rocketing up in terms of their yield. So that means there's a big sell-off in the long end of the curve. Um, here's here's a fun chart for you. The total drawdown in ultra-long duration U.S. Treasury bonds now exceeds the stock market peak to trough, stock market crash. During the great financial crisis. So if you were a holder of long bonds, now this excludes uh, both dividends and fixed income payments. So, um, but you, the, the peak to trough uh, drawdown in bonds is larger than the peak to trough drawdown in the S&P 500 during the great financial crisis. Yeah, so, and just let that, let that hang there for a second. This is the quote unquote risk-free asset. Now, okay, long duration bonds are not risk-free. Right, right. Well, but- but treasuries are, are not, you know, supposed to default. But what, what people are getting a, a quick lesson in here 
is what happens with duration when interest rates normalize. And, 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 I, and I use that term very intentionally in that you know, we had, I think, stupid, like a better term, policy uh, for way too long with this whole QE, zero, zerp kind of, you know, bail out the banks fiasco. And, but here's the problem, right? Is, I don't know if you have the chart or not, but um, the, the CDS, credit default swaps on banks have blown out. And there's going to be a whole bunch of banks floating to the surface, like dead, like dead, dead. And like dynamiting a river, right? The fish just float to the top and, and it, it's, it's ugly. And, and basically that was caused by this, again, idiotic in hindsight, actually in foresight, it was idiotic, plan where you, you forced the banks to borrow from the Fed at zero and buy treasuries. Right. That, that was the plan because there, there were no buyers of treasuries and, and they wanted to do this MMT thing and this big fiscal spend. And, and so, okay, who's going to buy the bonds? Well, Japanese aren't buying them. The Russians aren't buying them. So, okay, you bank, you buy them. And it was free money for a long time. Borrow at zero, invest at three, lever up 10 times. Love it. Okay, now rates go from zero to five. Oh shit. I got I got big losses. And we saw SBB. Well, now it's beyond SBB. I mean, regional banks all over this this fine country of ours are are about to just get obliterated. And then what happens? And this this is the part that I don't want to be too alarmist and, and too scary, but if they then can't buy, who's gonna buy all the bonds? Which is, I think, what has happened in the past month. The bond market's like, well, shit, there's no one to buy my stuff. So I got to hire, I got to offer higher rates to clear the market. I mean, that's what it feels like to me. Lynn Alden, I think, gave a a really great explanation of this. I think it, it surprised a lot of folks that bonds didn't catch a bid earlier, right? Because there was this period this year where... All right, it was it was it looked a little bit stagflationary, right? Where we were sort of drifting. There was inflation push, pressures were running off, but it was sort of slow to moderate growth. Usually, bonds do pretty well in a scenario like that. The problem was for for most of the the last you know twelve to eighteen months, we still had negative real yields, which aren't tri- typically super great for bonds. So now we're in a situation where we do have positive real yields, but now there's it's probably a supply a supply issue as well that's compounding. And, and it's a supply issue, but, it, but it's also the explicit goal of what the Fed is trying to do, right? They're trying to move rates up because what they're looking at, in, in addition to other things, is this extremely stubborn labor market, which is still not really moving. It is not really moving. The other point that I want to draw your attention to, because we just had uh, uh, payrolls data come out. It was a hot report. So the Daily Shot actually did a great job of highlighting. So we had ADP come out this week. Um, and it was, it was very interesting to see all of these charts one against the other. But I think the, both the, the bond market and the stock market are now uh, heavily looking at the labor market because the idea being the Fed has been very clear that they're not going to pivot, intervene, 
change their current trajectory of monetary policy until they see a market change in labor. So what we what we had here was was very interesting. There was a there was a reaction in the ten year to the ADP report, which was a sell off in yields, which corresponded to a stabilization of stock prices. So what what just happened right now? So we're according it's eight forty three on Friday. Is that we had a hot jobs report? Um, so we had three hundred thirty six versus one hundred seventy k, which was expected. And I'll I'll show you. Um, yeah, let me pull the chart up. But we, there was an immediate response in the ten-year yield, which was basically the exact inverse of the move that we saw with ADP, um, and it and it jumped. So I think I think it's fair to say, and it was a pretty pretty market jump too. Here, I'll get it on the screen. No, it's 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 ugly. I mean, talk about again. I wore the red pants for a reason. I mean, we went from up half a percent in. Uh, NASDAQ futures to down over, you know, 1.2, uh, 10 year was, was, uh, yeah, that, that's awesome. That's, uh, yeah. that's a chart right there. It's and almost 10 basis points, 10 basis point move in treasure in the 10 year yield in in response to the jobs report that is for the 10 year. I mean, that's, that's significant. So, no, it's a big move and, and the 30 years right behind it. Um, and, and look, it's, I haven't, I haven't dug into the numbers. My guess is like what they've been doing all year. Uh, they they print the hot number on the front end and then they revise the number the next two or three months. So my guess is that they probably revised uh, previous months again. And, but, but I, to the, to the point of why, right? Why do you want to cause breakage? So look, looking at this chart here, this is, we're looking at the, I, I zoomed way into a chart that we looked at earlier just to respond to this blowout headline number of a job support. And to, to your point, Mark, it has tended to get revised over and over again. But the 10-year, 20-year, and 30-year are all basically moving in tandem here. We've now got the 30-year over 5%. That makes it the highest level that the thirty year has been. The thirty year has been at since two thousand seven. So, you know, we are really moving up there. The other thing, it, people tend to talk about levels, and levels are very important. But there's also the rate of acceleration in in yields, which is that is really the concerning thing as well. Just how quickly this is moving up, and I think the story here is to your point, the more macro secular story for yields is issuance. And there has to be a clearing price where buyers will move back into the market. And it looks like we're about to find out where that is. I also think it's fair to say that clearly the the bond market is looking at labor conditions over here in the US and zoning in on that as a key input uh, and driver. So look, I, I think it's so interesting. And you know, I was I was just in Vegas for this conference, the Filecoin event. And we're talking before we got on air that kind of like permissionless, when I look year over year, there were, there were fewer people, but better people. And I don't mean better in terms of the quality of the people. I mean, the people that came the first time were bad. What I mean is the people who, who trudged, literally trudged there in this, you know, bear market and are the people with 
incredible conviction, incredible passion. I had some of the best conversations I've had in a long time at both events, both permissionless and, and the Filecoin event with people who are, are building real tech with real solutions and not talking about punting in this, you know, shitcoin or that shitcoin, but, but literally building amazing, amazing stuff. And, and it's just so heartening, right? It, it's just so great to be around those people. But the other observation was, this was, was booming. I mean, I, I don't really understand. I mean, I really don't. Given what I know of layoffs, what I know of, you know, home prices, food prices, what, what wage growth has been relative to those, which is anemic. And, you know, I just don't, I don't understand it, but, but man, there, it, it, it was packed, it was busy. People were throwing money. I, there was a, a slots tournament going on while we were there. I don't even understand that, right? Poker, their skill, blackjack, kind of skill. You could have a tournament of skill. Slots? I, as far as I know, there's no skill in slots. So how do you have a tournament? You just, you just sit there and whoever gets the luckiest is, is the winner? Here's the crazy, I'll ask you. So $30,000 buy-in. Mm. What was the average income of the participants? Uh, I think this is going to make me sad. I, it's going to make, make me sad. I, I don't even want to guess. $75,000. And I'm just like, how? Like where? I mean, so I, I don't, I really don't understand. So, so there, there, there's this element of, Hey, things are awesome. Now you don't see it in the GDP number. The GDP number just got revised down again. You don't see it in profits, although estimates of future profit keep going up, but, but actual profits have been lackluster. And you certainly don't see it below the, the, the Magnificent Seven, right? The average 493 stocks are dead flat because they're not really making a lot of money. I, I don't know. Banks on the verge of bankruptcy, real estate market in shambles. But Vegas was rocking. So I don't know. Yeah, I think this is where I want to get into this analogy or this situation that Stan Druckenmiller has been talking about. For, for a long time, you and I have been talking about this, this idea of limbo. And I just keep going back to this, this setup that Stan Druckenmiller talks about uh, during the during the uh, dot-com bubble where, mm -hmm. first of all, even, even this is a great story because it reminds you that even the best uh, succumb to FOMO, make bad trades, horrible investing decisions, the same thing that plague all of us. But, you know, basically got in roughly early in, in the dot-com bubble, sold early as well, sick with FOMO, let the young guys take the wheel, bought in right at the top, took, you know, took a huge took a loss, took a bath, went off, is like, maybe I'm going to shut the fund down. I'm going to go to Africa. Had a safari for three months. Didn't look at the screens. Came back. And the setup that he saw, roughly, was this. Got the setup here. 
Um, oh man, time. Yes, here we go. So this is 2001, or basically 1998 through 2002. Mm-hmm. And he saw, I mean, look at how similar this is. So you had this huge run up in the NASDAQ uh, that culminated in March of 2000. Big initial sell-off. But then you had, and I've heard you talk about this as well, this kind of face-ripping bear market rally off the low. Unbelievable. And it looked like everything might be okay. But at the same time, what did you have? You had oil up, you had dollar up, you had yields up. Now, and then obviously we know what happened, right? So this is where Stan comes in, says, what am I missing here? This is the most obvious short of all time. Shorts makes it all back. Phenomenal, right? So <laughs> continuing his... The, you know, the similarity is, is so incredible. And we, look, we've talked about this for over a year in that people think the tech wreck happened in 2000. No, 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 no. That was the first piece of it. That was when people finally said, yeah, these, these prices are bad. But, but the Fed uh, was not happy with the initial leg down, right? The market only fell 9% in uh, 2000 and into that first quarter 2001 um it actually had a had this face melter of, of a rally because the fed was going to do everything to to keep the party going and then the first quarter gdp number came in negative and people were like oh that's an anomaly it's an anomaly when the second quarter gdp number came in positive like see i told you it was an anomaly well, then the third quarter came in. And, and, and to be fair, 9-11 happened. And that exacerbated the problem, right? And, and no one knew that was going to happen. Well, there's, some people say there are people that knew, but no, one, no investor really knew it was going to happen. And actually, that might not even be true either. Probably somebody knew. Um, but like that movie, was it Casino Royale? The one where the, the guy went short the airline stocks and then- Yeah, it's Casino Royale, baby. Yeah. So, so in hey, hindsight, but, not the most sophisticated financial heist of all time. No, no, no. I remember watching that movie for the first time and I was like, shorting derivatives, what does that mean? And now I'm watching it, but like, yeah, they would go to jail for this. Oh, <laughs> like, no, exactly. Yeah, you can't go short an airline and then have it blow up immediately. Yeah, you can't <laughs> blow up. You know, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bombing that would trigger and, some alarms, my man. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, very bad, very bad. But what's interesting is what people forget is what really caused the downdraft in 2022 was, was the big down year. It was down, you know, 22, 23%. Uh, 2002, not 22. 2002 was down 20 some odd percent. Why? Stress of debt, bonds, right? You had WorldCom, Enron blow up, fraud. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds like FTX. Um, you had all kinds of people realizing, oh, geez, these, these guys are in trouble. And Cisco restated all their earnings, quote unquote, that they didn't actually have because they were doing, you know, accounting manipulations. Remember, we have the largest non-GAAP accounting adjustments in the history of GAAP. I mean, it's, there's, there's shenanigans going on. And, you know, Lord, uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, no, John Maynard Galbraith described it in the, the 1900s as, as the bezel. 
right? It's where the word embezzlement comes from, right? And he says, the bezel has always existed, right? There's always theft. People are stealing. And the more they get away with, the more they do. And so the bezel rises. And then somebody gets caught and there's an overreaction by regulators and companies and, and the bezel drops really dramatically. But bad people are going to do bad stuff. And so they start stealing again and then they get away with it and they get away with it or they change, you know. And so there's this cyclicality to the bezel. I'm going to argue the bezel today is as high as it's ever been. And it's that recognition by people that they're being stolen from. I think maybe what we're saying is prepare for hard times. I, that's what I think. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. To just complete the, the setup here and the similarities, if you're following along via video, I mean, th- what we're watching here just looks so... So we're looking at a chart from 2019 to the present day. And the NASDAQ has run up, peaked just at the tail end around November of 21. Obviously, sold off very hard going into 2023, all of 22. But we had this face-ripping rally for most of this year. And there, this is where there are similarities, but some differences. So we had the price of oil peak around the same time that the NASDAQ was selling off. But we do have these things here of the dollar is going up, dollars up in both situations. The dollar is the, the sort of wrecking ball that gets, gets swung and it's an indicator of people wanting to move into a safe haven. And you, you do have a little bit of a different story here going on in between yields with yields and, and oil. There's a big sell-off. And now this was when the US started draining the SPR. So oil responded to that. Obviously, the situation isn't going to be one for one. But yeah, this combination of yields, oil, and the dollar that is what you should be worried about when it comes to equity prices. And I don't know. It, this has been the story of the last couple of months, been in limbo, and I feel like the, the market is moving in a way that tells us, that, yeah, equity prices are probably going to respond here. And I, I was talking to Jason yesterday, actually, about the other thing that's happened is we've got this AI boom as well, right? And most of, by the way, that price appreciation in... In the, in the NASDAQ index has been a couple of companies. AI has been a big part of that story. Anthropic. Anthropic, ironically enough, connects to FTX. Anthropic is a big new AI company. FTX invested in it. It, it just got a massive investment by Amazon. And then two days later, Google comes in with an additional $2 billion, you know, valuing at 20 to 30%. And I think the story for AI, I'm not an AI hater. I am an AI big believer. I am also a big non-believer when investors, you know, huge corporate investors pile in and FOMO like that. I just, I just think in the short term, that's going to turn over. People get hurt. Jason was telling me about a company, an AI company that stabilizes your lucid dreams. I was like, oh boy. I mean, well, we get into, it stabilizes your dream territory. No, <laughs> look, Michael, that it's... it's it's truly unbelievable what 
what is happening in, in the FOMO space, right? And again, I'm, I'm in the venture capital business. And so we see this stuff and our, our mandate is what we call the ABCDs of the digital age, AI, blockchain, chips, and data. And, you know, chips, oh man, it's amazing. We've seen the best deals we've, we've seen. There's real innovation. There's real engineering going on. You know, we've got the problems of, of reaching literally the, the limits of physics in silicon. And so we're looking at new substrates. And so really cool stuff. In terms of a blockchain, look, blockchain, that's why I was so excited to be with the, the Filecoin people. I mean, there's, there's really amazing stuff going on in terms of shifting from traditional database structures to, to blockchains for, for legitimate, real speed, efficacy, security, all that stuff. AI, it's just how many times can I say it? How many times can I put it in my, my pitch deck? And I'll give you the, the perfect example. So we've talked about this company, C3AI. Okay. This guy, Tom Seibel, Siebel, uh, Siebel Systems, he sold it. He started this company. What do they do? Nobody really even knows, but they quote unquote help companies use AI. But they've been around for eight years, eight years. Stock was down, 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 down. Okay. Day chat GPT. It was 12 bucks. It went all the way to 50 bucks. I've been getting a Twitter debate with this guy on this. He's like, oh, see, you're wrong. This is a great company. Tom Siebel's great. I'm like, they eviscerate cash. They, they vaporize cash. They, they don't, they'll never make money, ever. Down 50%, five zero uh, since the peak in, in uh, July. It's worthless. It is a worthless stock. But because the ticker symbol is AI, everyone thought they were buying ChatGPT. They thought they were buying OpenAI. Like, are you, are you serious? You don't even look at the name of the company that you're buying? It's stupid. When, when that, when this happens, right? When a stock goes up because their ticker is bad things happen. Yeah. What was. Man, there, that, I feel like this has happened many times over the course of the last couple of years. There was the Zoom technologies debate, the Zoom yes. picker and Zoom technology was a great one. stock picking contest because of this confusion. Really? I <laughs> wanted to uh, go short Zoom, um, but instead they put in, when they entered my trades, they put in Zoom technologies, which went down like 95%, which worked out great. Um, so that's anyway. awesome, man. This zoom chart is absolutely bleak here. This is, it is up 4% in the last five years, completely given up its gains in, uh, of course, and, and because it's reason, a great company. Yeah, it is. But the valuation got to stupid levels because what happens with these companies, there's not that much free float and everybody's. GameStop memeing it, AMCing it, and there's just not enough stock to go around. So the stock trades to itself, to the machines, to the people, and then the price goes up. Because remember, the price is simply what two people agree to exchange a small amount. It has nothing to do with the value of the company. It's just the trading sardine. It's not the eating sardine. And so in a, in a low float company, 
you know, the most extreme example is the one I talk about from, from 2000, this husband and wife consulting company, and they floated 1%. They kept 99% and they floated 1%. And it would trade like 40 times the total amount of stock every day. And they would just feed another 1% to the, to the fish. And that's not illegal. I'm like, how can that not be illegal? That's completely unethical. But the same thing is, is happening here. And Zoom is, is a great technology. It's a great business. It actually makes real money. But the valuation got to 200 times revenues. Where NVIDIA got to. But well, that's another story. Hey, Mark, so I'm looking at Zoom right now. So Zoom is down some 90 odd percent from the highs. Do you want to guess what its price to earnings ratio is? Down 90% from the highs? 43. Now I'm actually wondering if this could possibly be right because what I have here is 675. I, oh, I actually have to check that. That's just what's showing on Google. So that could no, be No, that's awesome. I mean, that, I mean, is, that, awesome. that is the point. And Bill Gurley did make this point very early on, which is just, just prepare to never go back to those values. Even Amazon. I, which is, I got it at 146 um, on, on trailing 12 months. So uh, what, what, no, what, what there is, is sometimes there's an anomalous, like, like a restatement. And I'm actually going to look at this today because that's probably what happened is I bet they had to restate some things they were calling earnings that, that weren't. And that's where that 600 number is coming from. Um, but yeah, this is a company, uh, it, it's, it's a perfectly fine company that, uh, you know, did $4 billion of revenue last year. They do about a billion dollars of revenue a quarter. They actually make an infinitely small amount of, of money. Um, unfortunately, they lost money last quarter and that's where that, that big number is coming from. Um, but it trades at a, you know, $20 billion market cap. Now, five times revenues is high, but not stupid, right? That's, that's gone from being stupid to not stupid. It could still go down from here, but, but it's not stupid. The ones that are stupid are the ones that are back at 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 times revenues, revenues, not, not earnings. And the problem is there's a whole bunch of companies out there like, like C3 AI. They don't make money. They'll never make money. Why would you buy, a, why would you buy an equity of a company that doesn't make money? Because you expect them to make money in the future, but they never have. And there's, there's so many of those. There's so many SaaS companies out there. They just eviscerate money because they're having to buy new customers I don't know. It's so it's a weird world in which we live. It is a very weird world in which we live. And one thing, one thing I wanted to. Uh, so, by the way, here there's a great analysis here. I'm just reading some of these real time uh, takes that are coming out from the jobs report. Steph Pomboy is great, and there's a little bit of context to add here. So, you know, beneath the surface of the headline number, it, their report doesn't actually look as strong. And here are a couple of data points. So there's a divergence between the household survey and the payroll survey, um, and they're starting to diverge. So in turn, the household survey says it's up just 86,000 versus 336K for payrolls. Household tends to lead. Death ratio. Birth, uh, turning death points. Ratio. Right. 
Right. So the big divergence there. And then full-time employment is down a stunning 692,000 over the last three months. The last three times this happened was 2001, 2008, and the COVID recession. And but Michael, here's the thing. We, we've been talking about this, right? Three quarters, 750,000 of the million jobs that were created in the last year are fake. They don't exist. They're this nonsense of, oh, we're 13 years into an economic expansion. So therefore, this many companies are being formed and this many are dying and we have those, this positive job. Like, no. Even if you say we're not in recession, fine, you can say there was a recession in 2022. There just was. So we're a year into an economic. So you got to adjust your formula to say one year in, the much lower number and a much higher number. We had just record bankruptcies. Oh, corporate bankruptcies are record last quarter. So this, this idea that you can use a mythical number to create a jobs number, despite the fact that we actually know to the person how many jobs are being created, who's paying taxes. We, we, we know that, right? They use this little company called ADP and, and others. And the fact that we don't use that and we still use this silly birth death ratio from the BLS, just take out the L. It, it, it literally is just BS. So I, I want to move on to almost maybe like a lightning round here. And yeah, how, how does this end up impacting equities? Because they have remained stubborn. We've talked about the, the divergence in between the Ma Magnificent Seven, the rest of the stock market. Do we finally start to see that turn towards the end of this year? Well, what do you it's think? already turned. It's already turned, right? We peaked um, in July. So we peaked July 28th. And uh, we've given back almost half, not quite half, almost half of the gains for the year. Um, could we go all the way back to zero for the year? Yeah, we could. Um, everybody said, oh, no, the Santa Claus rally is coming. The Santa Claus rally exists in years where you have big losses in certain sectors and there's a rebalancing and, and there's, and it usually happens in October. So uh, October 31st, or I'm sorry, it happens in November. So October 31st is the deadline for mutual funds to make sales for the current year. It used to be 1231, they moved it back to 1031. And so what happens every year is, it used to be the last week of October and then some people tried to game it and they did the third week of October and then some do the second. So starting, you know, around next week, People will start selling the losers. They have to wait 30 days to avoid a wash sale. And then they buy them back. And that used to happen the last week of December into January. And there was something called the January effect. So small cap stocks and, and the things that had performed poorly the previous year had this big face melting rally in January. It's called the January effect. Mm. And then it disappeared when they changed the law and it moved to November. And that's not what they call the, the Santa Claus rally because it happens toward the, the Thanksgiving time into Christmas time. And everyone's like, oh, this is great. I'm like, well, it only works when there is a dislocation in some segment of the market that people can rotate into in these big giant mutual funds. In a year like this year where everything's up or flat, so you got most things are flat and you got the Magnificent Seven up, what's what's going to get sold to tax loss harvest? Nothing. 
And then what are you going to buy back in November? Nothing. So I, I just don't think there's any impetus for the Santa Claus rally or the January or the November effect, I guess now it's called. Um, and so I think what we have now is we have no tailwind and we have increasing headwinds, particularly this, this interest rate thing. It's possible. I'm not, not predicting this. I'm not saying it's going to, it's possible that they've lost control of the long end, right? It's possible. And they don't really control the long end like they do the short end where they can, you know, change rates. But in theory, you, you kind of, you lasso the long end with the short end and you kind of hold it, you know, up or down by, by, but it's possible that they've lost it. And, and the supply and demand problem is going to uh, overwhelm the market. And there was somebody who it was Ron, what's the guy? Um, he's on CNBC. Uh, he's got the glasses. Oh God, what's his name? Um, it's not DeSantis, right? That's the political guy, but um, whatever, Santori, San, Santori. Um, anyway, so he was saying in a, in a segment that rates could go to 13%. I'm like, okay, why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? Is that a talking point? Has he been told to say that? Is that, is that just an extrapolation of the current trend? I mean, what? Right? That was weird. That was weird. That to me felt like what you do with propaganda, right? You put something way out extreme to seed the idea and then you start repeating it. Like, I've actually... I've got a question uh, about bonds, by the way, these higher yields. You, you asked this question at the beginning. Uh, we've got the move index up here for those who are listening because I, I want to expand on that idea of if the Fed lost control of the long end of the curve, which would have big implications. When With yields going up, don't, I mean, just to be really like left side of the bell curve here, doesn't that bring in like foreign buyers? Like if, if the 30-year if the goes to, okay, let's not say like 10%, say like 6 or 7%. I have to imagine buyers step in there, right? I mean, no, you'll, exactly. you'll that, that, buyers step in. That's the point, right? At what point does the buyer step in? But then, then you have an inflection point, and, I, and again, I don't know what the number is, where doubt creeps in, mm. where people say, "Oh my God, they could default," mm. and that's that's why you got to watch. You got to watch the credit default swap on U.S. Treasuries, right? Should there even be one of those? Why should there be a credit default swap on something that theoretically can't default? Well, because it, it could. I don't think we will. But, and again, we're not an emerging market. So it's, it's different. Like you've seen Italy or Spain or, you know, in the crisis back in, in global financial crisis, what happened to those bond yields? You know, they, they blew out to double digits before QE, you know, pushed them down where Greek bonds got all the way down through treasuries. Imagine that, right? And- I, when I say lose control, I, I don't mean like the complete meltdown of the world. I, I just mean higher rates at the long end should, should be correlated to better economic activity and higher growth. That, that's what it should mean. High rates are a sign of economic strength. Low rates are a sign of economic weakness. But if it's a supply demand problem and not an expectations positive 
if it's a supply demand problem, meaning you got you to gotta issue all these bonds to pay all this interest because you're spending too much, you know, in Ukraine or whatever, and the budget doesn't balance. Then people start saying, well, geez, these things could default. I need a really high yield to take them. And then are you really the risk-free rate at that point? I don't know. That's, that, that's the weird dynamic. And I don't think we're there. And I think that's actually, I think that's why Bank of Japan intervened last night because they can kind of feel it slipping away. All right. That's what I wanted to close on here. So we're looking at the move index, which is again, sort of consider it the VIX for the bond market. There's a great, so as you can see, those of you who are following along via video, it is starting to spike and get back around the levels that we were at in March when we had the bank failures. There's a really great quote from Harley Bassman here, who's the creator of the move index. The move is back above 140, which uh, mean, which implies a, a, the move when it gets above 140 implies a yield change of nine basis points a day for the next months, which is not sustainable. So that would be similar to the VIX at 50 or 3.1% per day. So we're basically, the move is telling us that something has got to give in the bond market. Other signs of stress here, I don't have the chart, but you can look it up. KBW, which is an index for regional banks, it is plumbing the March lows. Uh, banks are selling off, which tells you that stress is coming. Um, and yeah, could, could you talk a little bit, Mark, as well about this intervention from the BOJ? And oh, this here's this is another great chart of the dollar. So that, that the Dixie uh, has has broken trend its trend downwards that it had since the the end of twenty two. It's in a firm move up again, and yeah, it looks like we had uh, an, a midweek intervention from the BOJ and the USD uh, yen cross is starting to respond. Uh, so. I mean, can you just give us an overview of what happened with the BOJ? I mean, look, the, the, the Bank of Japan is, has had some called yield curve control for, for a long time. And they basically said, you know, we're going to keep interest rates at a certain level, which basically means we're going to buy them all, right? We're, we're, we, the Bank of Japan, are just going to buy all the Japanese government bonds. And that, therefore, you 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 prevent this kind of run on the bank kind of phenomenon. Um, and, and it has implications for your currency, which we've seen, right? That currency has gotten eviscerated this year. I mean, I think uh, it went from 130 to 150, actually at 149 right now. So that's a, that's a monster move in, you know, one of the largest currencies in the world. And uh, as I understand it, um, last night they, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to get the exact timing of it, but there's this weird phenomenon where yen strength actually is correlated to um, positive market movements. Like, you know, uh, and, and essentially the way you think about it is in, in the olden days, and I don't know why this is still true, but in the olden days, the, the Japanese interest rates were much lower than everybody else. So it was used as a, a carry currency or as a funding currency for people who did, you know, different types of global arbitrage. And so when uh, things started to uh, unwind, that would uh, trigger people having to repatriate money back to Japan and the yen would actually strengthen. And so 
if the yen is weakening, that is historically been good for, you know, other markets because people can borrow cheaply and 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 lever up and and buy all this stuff. And and you saw a pretty like say a midweek kind of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, tightening of the yen, and cor- correspondingly, we've had this you know, disaster, I said disaster is too strong, but this mini disaster in, in other traditional markets. So, um, you know, last night they, uh, weakened the yen from 147 back to 149. That's a big move in, in a short period of hours. And I don't know. I, I think that I still think the plan of of the bank of Japan is to own them all right? To buy all the Japanese government bonds and then do a jubilee. I still think that's the plan. I think that's, you know, they're very happy to wave them in. Um, and if it, if it calms the, the savage beast in the rest of the world, um, which it was doing, right? Futures were up in the U.S., rates were down. And then, then we had the, the jobs number. Yeah. Uh, that, the, that is a sign of stress. I mean, when I always think about the Bank of Japan and and why they matter, the yen for ironic that it's still a safe haven currency, which I think most people would not have predicted. No, right when they started, and they're they're the furthest along on this monetary experiment that all the global central banks have been running for the past couple decades. So, yeah, it it matters quite a bit. Um, well, they're exactly eleven years ahead of us demographically and activity wise. And if you go back and you look at all the things that happened, you know, their market peaked in 89, ours peaked in 2000. They got downgraded in like uh, 93, we got downgraded in 04. I mean, all the things tend to happen. And, you know, they said they were going to stop QE in 2008. We said we were going to stop QE in 2016, 15, 16. Turns out they didn't stop QE and neither did we. So it's just, it's really interesting to watch that. And, and I don't know, they're, they're certainly all interconnected, right? The big three, the euro, the yen and and the dollar. Um, But, and look, we're stabilizing, you know, as, as you and I have been talking here for the last hour, um, markets are, are digesting that maybe the number wasn't as hot as, as people thought, and and maybe the Bank of Japan move was was you know more settling than people thought, but uh, I don't know. I we're hovering on that four ninety nine five percent on the thirty year. That's a psychological um, challenge for a lot of people. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the the good thing is it gives us lots to talk about. I mean, it's the Ancient Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Yeah, I think it will. It it will certainly be interesting times. Maybe just to close here, and you know, there's a lot that we didn't even get to talk about today. But what what I would be um, looking at is the Federal Reserve balance sheet, uh, and just as an indication of stress. So the the last the Fed has been rolling off their balance sheet for for the last uh, you know year or so. And historically, this has been the one thing they haven't really been able to meaningfully accomplish. This is the this is the visual or the ultimate manifestation of nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. And it turns <laughs> out that extends to bond buying schemes as well. 
So if you if you look at this chart, I can actually zoom all the way back out right to when QE actually was started back in 2008. And you can see there's this trend of like, all right, there's a temporary stress. So we start buying bonds. The balance sheet, you know, they roll off about 10, you know, 10, 20% of it. New stress starts to creep in. There's a different name, a different ABC program. Bond buying resumes, goes up, plateaus, goes down about 10, 20%. Whoops, got, got to resume that. Okay, uh, goes up. And now we're in this sell-off where we're at about this like 10% yep. sell-off in, ter- in terms of the bonds. And they're not even selling the bonds. They're just letting them mature and roll off. Mm-hmm. What we mm-hmm. saw here back in March was the resumption of an uptrend, uh, very minor, which was the BTFP program for banks. I love I, that you say 300 billion is very minor. I love I know. that. I know, I, love I know. That. Well, the I numbers are bigger than anyone thought they would be. But I know. Now, I know. Now, it was 300 billion dollars. I know. And they have but us talking the scale, about rates. It's cutney. We should be taught we should just be calling more attention to this because there's the there's the price of money and the quantity of money. And what the last 15 years would predict is that actually the quantity of money turns out is extremely important. That and that has to do more with bond buying programs than it has to do with interest rates. And it will be interesting because we're at about this historic level where that started to get tested. And I would actually argue there's a soft form of yield control going on in the form of the BTFP program. It's sort of yield curve control for banks. What, what a yield curve control is, is they're setting a target rate for interest rates. They're not letting the, uh, there to be a market clearing price. There is a target rate for where they want interest rates to be. The crudest form of this, which we did back in the 1940s and what Japan is doing today is infinite bid. Another softer thing that you could do is go to potential sellers of treasuries and say, don't sell. We'll, we'll, we'll create these facilities so that you don't have to sell. And that is what the BTFP is. So it's not outright yield curve control, but it is it is geared towards the same objective of... Oh, no, it, it is outright yield curve control. And it's just, but it's more insidious to your point. It's, it's, not, it's not open and public and transparent. It's behind doors. But, it, but that, that is the way this works. Remember the Fed, neither federal nor has any reserves, it's owned by the banks and the wealthy families. It's, it's inextricably linked to these banks. They are told what to do. They're told when to buy bonds. They're told when to sell bonds. They're told when to do nothing. They're told when. But to your point, the KBW index is now down almost 30% year to date. Okay. After rallying back to only down 10 a couple months ago, it's back to down 30. And Bodies are going to start bubbling up unless Uncle Fed says, you're good. You're good. Yeah. All those bonds, they're worthless, but don't worry. You just keep them and we'll eventually buy them from you, which is what the Bank of Japan did to their banks. I mean, look at, look at Japanese bank stocks for 35 years, 35 years, just, just evisceration of their equity. Yeah, they're still around. Still, you know, they're not, they're not, they're no longer the biggest banks in the world. Remember, they were the biggest banks in the world. That is an indicator of the top. Every time. When, when the banks, when the financialization of any economy becomes the largest in the world, whether it was the, you know, Portuguese banks or the Spanish banks or the uh, uh, Dutch banks or the French banks or the English banks, um, 
you know, there were no U.S. banks when the U.K. was the dominant superpower. And then we became, you know, pretty large and Japan had their run. And, you know, now I think we have the biggest banks in the world, the most financialized economy. And, and we're, we're going to see how that, that plays out. But my guess is, I like how you say it, soft yield curve control, which is kind of what it is. That's absolutely happening. But I've heard people talk about real YCC coming to the United States. Um, it'll be interesting. I have to go back and see when was the first time they did it in Japan. And if it's exactly 11 years later here, it'd be interesting. Well, the person I got to give credit who I feel like has most accurately anticipated these, these relationships is Lynn Alden. I've been reading her stuff for years and years. This passing of the one, the dynamic that we haven't brought up, and I know we get a run, is the passing of the baton from monetary to fiscal. And that is the big undercurrent right now that I feel like yep. is happening. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think, anyway, we should have her on at some point to chat, but. Oh, no, this been so much fun. That would be, that'd be total, that'd be a total kick in the pants. Let's do it. You know what? She came out with a book, Broken Money. Go, go buy that book. It's on my, it's been in my Amazon watch list. I'm going to just remind myself here to go actually buy that book. Check it out. She's phenomenal in terms of the research that she puts out. Very, very smart. And then the last thing as well is don't forget about Fast London. Link in the show notes. Early bird prices today. Don't sleep. Trip to London, baby. London, baby. Yeah. Jolly good. Jolly good. Jolly good. <laughs> oh God. Anyone who's actually English is just definitely not coming. No, no. I mean, look, yours was actually not bad. You're, uh, you're, you're, I was trying to do the Austin awesome Powers, powers. which... Holds up great over time, but all right, Mark, awesome that's how my week, my friend. I will see you.